Happy Thursday, everybody. This is Brandon Busty, president of University Partners at Kaplan, broadcasting live from Vienna, Virginia, where it's a beautiful sunny fall day, uh, little remnants of summer still hanging with us. I'm delighted to have uh, a, a friend that I've known for, I'd say, about 20 years now. Uh, we originally connected when we were both living in Boston as uh, founders of various educational startup organizations. Um, and so John, uh, somebody I've known for a long time and highly respected, I've watched uh, the, the work he's done across higher education for a long time. Uh, in the context today, uh, he's here as the, as the co-founder of GradGuard, which is a tuition insurance company that was founded about a decade ago. Um, and we're gonna talk a, a little bit about uh, his, comp his company, the context with which uh, it was founded and, uh, and obviously the new context that he's operating in uh, amidst this global pandemic. So John, first of all, thank you for carving out the time to join me. Uh, I'm sure folks would love to hear a little bit more about your background and about GradGuard. So let me hand it over to you and, uh, and ask you to do that. Thanks, Brandon, and, and thanks uh, uh, for the kind uh, words. Yeah, 20 years uh, ago, we were working hard in Boston and uh, you building outside the classroom. Our, our business was a college publisher and, at the time and, and Y2M. And it's just, a, it's great to work with people over decades uh, like you that are, are so sincere. I think we both have uh, been true believers. Sometimes not always, uh, uh, like in the case of GradGuard, tuition insurance was something nobody heard of uh, 10 years ago. Um, and why is it necessary? And you get asked these questions and is that really what you wanna be spending your life on? And the truth is, uh, whether it be any of these businesses, I think we both do what we believe in. And in my case, we started GradGuard with uh, my business partner, Bill Sunnison and I, because really we saw that higher education had become really the second largest investment in most families' lives. And it became uh, something where the balance of risk had shifted. The, 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 the shift of, uh, of the risk of college when you could actually work through college when, when I went to Arizona State, it was $450 a semester. Um, it's pretty extraordinary how now $15,000 a year uh, is really something you can't work through. And frankly, the financial risk is really a much, much greater. Um, and so what we did is we started GradGuard with the goal of really helping schools protect their students and their families that they serve from financial losses. And when we peeled back, uh, I, you may recall, I had built a student loan uh, business that we had ultimately sold to Chase. When you build, pull back the issues around the student loan controversies and, the, and the, the debt problem that is always in the headlines, the truth is that most people who graduate get a good value of their education. Most people don't overborrow. But the real crisis in, in education, from my perspective, are those people who invest in college but don't end up with a cred degree, something as evidence that they, they have improved themselves. You don't always need to graduate, but if you don't graduate without skills that you've improved yourself with, you're likely going to be in a difficult place to, in terms of being able to repay your student loans. And in fact, 80% of student loan defaults come from people who did not graduate. And when we talk about student success and college completion uh, and actually uh, certificates and in things that demonstrate, you know, um, what you're doing when you do graduate, those are the types of things that mitigate risk. Uh, schools that offer credit degrees and, and that embrace that concept, they're reducing financial risk for those students that have invested in their college. Schools that offer tuition insurance, tuition insurance isn't necessarily something any of us have ever thought of, uh, but universities today 
uh, act a lot uh, like cruise ships. I mean, everybody pays a different price. Uh, and in this audience, we all know that uh, tuition discounting is, is a big deal. It's, it drives enrollment, drives shaping classes uh, around the country. Um, so every student actually pays a different amount. That's not well known to the public, but it's well known in our community. And the second piece of that um, is that uh, the reality is that schools don't provide refunds. Uh, we work with Harvard and Princeton and Brown and MIT and wonderful schools, but also Purdue and Alabama and Tennessee. And what I always say to, to folks is that um, virtually every school today cannot afford to provide refunds. Uh, they can't afford to provide a refund where when it was only $450 30 years ago, they could. Today, cash flow at every institution we work with is a vital factor. And even if you do get sick, you get sick with COVID, you, you have uh, a mental health issue, you have a substance abuse issue, universities are no longer in a place where they're gonna be able to provide a refund, even for tuition or for academic fees or housing. But that's where GradGuard comes in and we, we will provide that refund when schools do not. Yeah, it's interesting, John, because I mean, I've I've only been aware of this because I've I've followed your work, right? Like the the concept. I mean, as I think about, you know, when I went to college and headed off, which is a good twenty five years ago now, there was no, you know, no, you know, no real understanding of something like, well, geez, I might need I might need a product like tuition, you know, uh, insurance. Costs were different. I mean, obviously, since nineteen eighty, higher ed tuition's gone up four hundred percent. So, you know, that's a big factor. Your point is the risk shifted, right? And the risk shifted considerably to students and families. But so like, you know, take me through the basics of it, right? So I, 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 I enroll at Duke University, I get sick, I have some kind of other issue, and I have to leave, I'm not getting a refund. Uh, so if I don't have tuition reinsurance, what I'm out, I'm out that whole first semester worth of tuition, I lose my room and board fees, whatever I paid. I mean, is that essentially the story that's, at most institutions? That's the story. And what we're doing is helping uh, promote uh, for universities a way to uh, mitigate that risk. We're also, we did a survey just a year ago and Nakubo has confirmed a lot of this. Uh, only 6% of schools provide 100% refunds, right? Only mm -hmm. 6%. Most schools provide refunds consistent with the return of federal financial aid dollars, which means if you leave school for any legitimate reason, you're gonna get some of your money back over the first five weeks of school. And that's fine. And that's really consistent with the return of federal financial aid dollars. But once those dollars have been earned by the school, they don't provide any refund to uh, students. And I don't think that consumers also should expect that universities should. Uh, you know, the end of the day, the schools have to provide for the infrastructure. They have to expect that the faculty are there to teach and that everything's going to work. So it's a little unrealistic if something unexpected happens uh, for a, a consumer, a family or a parent or a student to even think that they would get their money back. Initially, the goal was to provide a do-over for families, that if you'd borrowed a PLUS loan or, or FELP loan or whatever the, the federal loan program money you might have had, or you spent your 529 plan, that you just get made whole. Because the truth of it is that, and you and I were talking about ACHA earlier, American College Health Association, in the higher ed world, we really need to look at not just the capacity to pay for college, and not just academic readiness, we need to look at the health issues that are affecting students' lives. And uh, substance abuse and mental health and uh, the emergence of chronic health conditions is a big deal in this generation. Uh, and I, th I think some people don't, aren't aware that, you know, the last 20 years in this country, uh, this 
This generation of young people are more vulnerable than ever before. And some of it's due to diet, some of it's due to elimination of PE programs and physical, physical education programs. This sounds unusual, but we have a national crisis of, of just even military readiness uh, of young people. And those people are showing up to college in bigger numbers than ever before. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that they may not uh, be able to complete an academic term. And what we believe is that every student should be given an opportunity to protect themselves from that financial loss. And by the way, yeah. it's cheap. It's super cheap. It's 1% for uh, the cost of co a college or what coverage you might need. So if you spend $10,000, it's $100 for the coverage uh, per term. It's relatively inexpensive. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you bring up a big point. You know, we started off focusing on the, you know, the, the, the cost of college becoming a bigger and bigger investment, which makes it <clears throat> theoretically, you know, uh, riskier, right? If it doesn't pan out, you start college and don't finish. We know there's very little economic benefit for those who start college and don't finish compared to those who, you know, uh, to, to have a high school dip diploma, right? So I was just looking at the data this morning. Uh, in the United States, somebody with a high school diploma makes about uh, $520 a week. And if you, uh, sorry, no, that's a, that's a high school dropout, 520 High school graduate makes $712 a week. If you have some college and no degree, you make $774 a week, barely 9% more than those who just have a high school diploma, right? And a lot of those with some college, no degree have at least a year of college under their belt, right? 30 credits or more. Interestingly enough, one in five college dropouts has 75% of the credits towards graduation. So we get a lot of people quite a long ways down the path. But my point is anybody who falls in that is barely earning more than a high school graduate with no college at all, right? It's the degree that really moves the needle on this. You get the bachelor's degree and you're making $1,173 a week, right? So that's the game changer. So, but anyway, we, we've talked about the financial part. What you brought up too with mental health, right? And physical health and a lot of these other, other pieces. I mean, we know from the data uh, all those, all those issues, right? Uh, they have some co comorbid linkages, right? But those have really become issues for young people, and we know there are issues in the larger adult population as well. We were, you know, we were talking about deaths of despair and some of the work done by Nobel Prize laureate Angus Deaton, you know, where what he showed was for the first time ever, you know, lifespan in the United States has started to go down because there's so many people who are are dying of, you know, alcoholism, drugs, suicide. So, you know, this is, this is a problem with our youth and college. Um, and so I think there's a number of reasons why what, what you were doing was, you know, ahead of its time 10 years ago, very relevant now. Tell me about the pandemic, right? Because what, what we also started to see in the pandemic was families starting to pursue lawsuits yeah. to get a refund on their tuition and housing. Very few, if any, were successful as far as I could track, right? But, uh, but what, you know, what happens now in the context of a pandemic? And this might not be our only pandemic, right? We could see waves of these, right? So, so just tell me, tell me what's happening right now. Yeah, so um, the, the short headline is that Allianz, our underwriter, world's largest insurance company, has agreed to pay for medical withdrawals due to students who become ill with COVID-19. They may be one of the very few insurance companies globally that's doing that. And they did it uh, really... Uh, and collaboration with us because we work with almost 400 universities um, from Boston to Indiana to California to North Dakota to Texas, right? It, it, we have the right spread of risk to basically say, if we're going to be able to manage this successfully and in terms of this risk, 
this is the right way to do it. And I'll tell you, Allianz is a really fine company because they stepped up. They don't have to. Pandemics are always excluded from every insurance policy. And in fact, if you read our policy, it's still excluded. However, we make a statement that says we will currently pay for those claims. And we are, are right now planning to do the same thing in the spring. Um, what I would say, it's interesting about infectious diseases generally in college, we already had factored in the viral nature, right? So 2% of college kids get mono every year. That's not, that's not typical, right? These close proximities, well, guess what? Why, are you, why do you have to take measles shot to go to most colleges in this country? Because measles, they have outbreaks all over the country every year. They're small, they're contained. Meningitis, Princeton had a meningitis outbreak just two or three years ago. Uh, these viral communities are really a big deal. It's not just Facebook that goes live, real viruses. And so I actually think uh, the universities have, have had to lean into this. I think uh, families' uh, expectations, just like any other consumer purchase, they need to be vigilant. But I think the media and families and the lawyers got ahead of themselves because the schools that had to close and change the delivery of how education was delivered this spring, that is for the well-being and safety and, uh, of everyone involved. And you know that is uh, force majeure. It's not something that anybody predicted. It's not a shortchanging. It's a shortchanging for the safety and well-being of folks. So I think that was unrealistic uh, and, a, and an unnatural uh, expectation. What I do believe is that, that as financial literacy is a really key piece, we have so many students we're talking about that are first-generation college students, more than maybe at any time in American history, where you're seeing everyone understands there is value, just like the economics you went through about the value of, a, of just a partial degree. But the reality is we need to do more to, to mitigate those risks. We need to help people uh, mitigate those risks in small ways. Uh, and I think tuition insurance is just one part of that. Living, actually living on campus and some of the data shows that actually helps you persist, right? Living in student housing helps you persist. Being your, your work when you're at Gallup, showing that when you have a job and you do these other things, you're, you're connected to other people who help you pursue your goals. This social fabric are really, there are multiple factors that basically lead to college completion. Um, and I think they're just, just I think it's um, something we should work towards. We were just talk, uh, talking about the book uh, you uh, and I were sharing about the uh, meritocracy problems uh, in our, our, our system today. I think one of the things we need to do is, is encourage people to complete their degrees and, and take away the stigma of not completing. Uh, and really saying, stepping up and completing that degree and helping find ways to make that happen. Shoot, we might even need a Pell Grant just to help make that possible for folks because that will enable the workforce that we really need in this country. Yeah, there's a, you know, I mean, it's interesting. One, I think mo most people, uh, you know, are unfamiliar with, you know, some of the nuances of, you know, insurance, right? So like, you know, this example of a, of a pandemic, right, being something that most insurance companies, you know, just they don't have to cover because it's, you know, considered, you know, whatever, right? Like, I remember, too, after September 11, there were, um, there were all kinds of changes in insurance that, that excluded acts of terror. So on life insurance, right? Yeah, and I don't know if, the, I mean, are those still, does that still persist in the life insurance industry? You know, I don't know about the life insurance industry specifically on, on terrorism. I think that uh, the, uh, the truth is in the 9-11 in in situation, you had the government step in and pay for uh, most of those claims. And 
Uh, and some life insurance companies now exclude terror, acts of terror. I think in most business interruption insurance, commercial insurance, you'll see terrorism excluded. I will tell you though, we don't, um, trauma is a big deal. And I think that whether it be the shooting at Virginia Tech years ago or other things, I think you'll see um, there, these types of risks are, universities are soft targets and we do need to worry about them. And we need to worry about how will schools survive through them. Um, just like this pandemic. I think we are seeing the financial distress of these universities is real. Uh, are, you know, these schools uh, have the same fixed costs and if students are, are enrolling at less, less levels than ever before, I think one thing as a community we can do, and, and you know, we've been, we've got lots of friends of university presidents, uh, Ren and Wright, that, and university provosts and deans. One of the things I think collectively we need to do is, is look for ways to improve the confidence in higher education. And, and improving the confidence is really about thinking about outcomes. The credit degree idea that you, you've talked about, uh, giving people specific value uh, and identifying how students and families can have confidence that enrolling in college and completing a college degree is worth it. And it's worth it not only to your economic standing, but to the well-being of your family, to the well-being of your communities, and frankly, the well-being of this country and the society. This is education is not just a private good. It is a public good. It is a public benefit. Yeah. And I, you know, we, I think we could uh, shift a little bit into that conversation because I know we were both talking about an influential book we've read. And, you know, for those of you who are watching, if you haven't already seen my LinkedIn posts and some encouragement from uh, a couple of last articles I've written, the, you know, the tyranny of merit by Michael Sandel is just an incredible read and higher ed factors prominently in his uh, powerful argument around the idea that although we, we value meritocracy greatly, uh, it has some very negative consequences, right? And, and he argues in the book that, that the last acceptable prejudice in the United States is essentially what you were describing, John, is, is uh, between the educated and the not educated. And he was much more specific about it. He said the credentialed and the non-credentialed, right? Because you could be highly educated without a college degree. You could have read every book in the, you know, in the library and not have a college degree, right? But, but you know, th those who have the credential, the prestigious university, uh, the bachelor's degree, master's degree, right? Like we've got, we, we value the credentials. And, and what it does is it inherently casts, uh, you know, some, some blame on those who don't, right? Like it's their fault that they didn't get educated. It's, you know, it's, it's the smart versus dumb. I mean, you know, we've created a real toxic mix around that. And you know what? Higher education is, you know, front and center in that. So, you know, a lot to grapple with. I mean, I think that book, you know, should make all of us in higher ed kind of step back because it's not, you know, uh, he's not arguing that we end the encouragement of college, right? But that we end the discouragement of the non-college path and that we should probably open our minds to the idea that there's a lot of other forms of high value education and training that could move the needle for people economically from a, you know, just kind of a, you know, a personal pride perspective, whatever it might be. Um, so, but, you know, there's, there's a lot to grapple with there. I, I tell you, you know, if, if we were going to say, uh, you know, thinking about risks, right, in the theme of this conversation, whether we're talking about things that, you know, insurance can solve for or not, put that aside, like where, yeah. where would you say the next great risk horizons are for higher ed? Like what, what do you see on the, uh, on the, on the horizon here? So I think that uh, as um, 
uh, fiduciaries, uh, boards of trustees are actually in a new, they have a new burden and they need to evaluate their business models. They need to evaluate the sensitivity towards enrollment changes, uh, such as international students not enrolling. Uh, University of Illinois bought a uh, insurance policy for enrollment of students from uh, China. Uh, and it happens to be paying out uh, this year. Um, so I think that it, from a fiduciary level, the, there is a, a systematic risk in universities right now. This year was probably the hardest and most difficult year for universities to secure commercial insurance coverage. And that is in part, not just due to the financial health um, that Moody's and others rank, but it's also in part due to some lack of oversight and lack of controls. For instance, uh, the Michigan State uh, uh, abuses that occurred there. There are a number of I mean, sexual assault uh, issues that have, have been really not well managed by universities. Mm -hmm. uh, and now you're seeing also Clery Act fines where some of the finest schools in the country have had fairly large fines for not being able to adequately report simple things like crimes and fires on campuses. And I would say with, with my higher ed colleagues, we need to do as good a job running these in, in institutions in terms of how we operate with transparency, our commitment to the truth and the facts, because if we can't be honest with a Clery Act report, why are they gonna believe us when we say that education is worth something or that masks work or that global warming might be real, right? I mean, these types of things, when we make statements in the academy, they're also evaluating the truthfulness of how we conduct our institutions. And, you know, I think Kaplan, Gradguard, we're just trying to be partners with schools. We're trying to help them be their best selves and make certain that risk is adequately spread, for instance, uh, that they have the right financial capacity, the right business models to be able to really serve the, the emerging needs of this uh, community in, this, in our country, so. Yeah, I think you pointed a number of things, right? I mean, there's uh, there's always been the risk of student behavior, right? And you think about, you know, national fraternities have struggled to, you know, find the right insurance to support, you know, the some of the, you know, the risks that go on within those organizations. And um, it, it requires some really, really serious, you know, risk management strategies. I mean, it has to become a major part of what you do. And you think about universities that have housing and transportation and food services and mental health services. I mean, it's mind boggling. And, you know, we, we've seen it with uh, sexual assault scandals, uh, but we're also seeing other things that are, are a threat, like a recent settlement to, uh, to, to make up for pay differential between uh, male, men and women faculty, right? Like these are things that, you know, are, are resulting in some big fines. And, um, I'm curious your view on like the next book I just started cracking open was the, the book on the whole college admission scandal, um, unacceptable, right? And right. Um, you know, we, I mean, I've, I've followed in the news now. I'm going to you know read the whole you know uh, bit that Melissa Corn wrote. Um, but you know, it, you start to think about this and you say, well, wait a minute, could I potentially sue a university for my kid not getting in there? Yeah. Right. Like, you know, like, t I mean, is that is that an area that has any validity? Right. Like so we I, got hosed I, and I can prove we got hosed. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a Melissa Korn uh, uh, and the Wall Street Journal higher ed team is just terrific. I think they really are delivering some insights around kind of peeling back the economic uh, issues around these things. So, yeah, I think that liability is everywhere for these institutions and I, I think, though, that they, they're, they're filled with people that aspire to higher values. They are, they're filled with people that are 
uh, intelligent enough to make good decisions. What they need to realize is that society is going to hold them accountable. Uh, and COVID has exposed some of those things, but these were, we were already on this, this path. And I think that uh, the student loan controversy, the student loan problem, right? The debt levels of students really is, is a disguise. The real disguise is the cost of education, the affordability of education, and what we're trying to do uh, in terms of our accomplishments towards that. I think that uh, if, co if college was not as costly as it is today, it would be less risky, right? The pure financial risk for families and students would, would change. So I remain convinced that the best way to, uh, to reduce risk is to manage the cost of schools like we do every other uh, public good. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we have to compromise, I think, on quality, but we have to think uh, in terms of how Arizona State, my alma mater, does a really good job of this, about how the enterprise can really deliver at scale a high quality education, so. Yeah, you know, you've t it's interesting that in a context of risk, right, you, you're bringing up this, this, I'll call it very simple point, but super important one of cost, right? And I continue to get frustrated all the time because when college cost comes up, you know, the, the first reaction from a lot of higher ed administrators is like to explain why it's gotten more expensive, right? And it just starts, and there, there's reasons, right? You know, decreased state funding and, you know, sure, right? I mean, but like, it just kind of, it, it just falls on deaf ears, right? Because you're like, well, sure, but like, why has it gone up so much? And then, and then the next reaction I hear to, to, you know, raising discussions about cost is it's in the form of more financial aid, right? It's, oh, well, we need more scholarship dollars. Let me go try to do that. It's not, let, let me actually sit down and think very carefully about how we could re-engineer a different cost structure. How could we, how could we maintain the same quality and lower the cost every year, as opposed to the other thing, which we've been doing, like there's been no real evidence that the quality of higher education has improved over the last 40 years, but we know the price has gone up 400%. Like, you know, and, and it's like opposite for consumer goods. You know, my flat screen TV is one-tenth the price it was and 20 times better than it was 10 years ago, right? Like obvious changes there. So, you know, this cost thing, I think, you know, Arizona State is a great example. They've, they've, They've made a playbook out of, you know, what Crow always says is, is, is being, you know, being defined by how many students they let in and serve, not by how many they turn away, right? This, you know, selectivity thing that is part of the, you know, tyranny of merit, merit that, you know, that's talked about. And then, you know, I think about Purdue University, you know, a school that's now frozen tuition for nine straight years. The cost of attending Purdue today is lower in real dollars than it was a decade ago, right? And like you go, okay, well, Purdue, a, a major public land grant university figured that out. I'm not saying that it was easy at all, right? I'm not suggesting that, but like if a large public land grant university can figure that out, then I think other universities can figure it out too, but you have to make it a priority. And you look at all the metrics between an ASU and a Purdue, record enrollments, they go up in rankings, not down, right? So these are schools that are, you know, here's one lowering the cost, uh, well, you know, boy, it must be not great quality, right? No, not at all. And here's another one. It's, you know, making, making a, you know, a name for itself globally by being inclusive, not exclusive. So, you know, I got to say, there's some counterintuitive strategies to the typical, you know, how do I succeed in higher ed? What I can't figure out is why aren't others doing more to follow those models? Like 
do you have any answer for that? Yeah, well, I wish I did, right? We've been to GSV uh, Ed, uh, Ed Summit a few times, and I think people, I, I think you've got a generation of leaders that uh, just have not uh, fully embraced uh, what Kaplan's doing, what, uh, you know, what we're really doing, which is kind of to pull the academies back into uh, the real world, right? I think that they've had the liberty of basically uh, you know, price elasticity because of the federal government's uh, financial aid program. I, I think that it's missed. There was a great uh, book called The Bill, and it was about uh, the development of uh, the direct lending program under the Clinton administration. But what was missed in that is the actual way most industrialized societies are providing education today is using a graduate tax. Uh, we have a whole student loan industry, service and collection business. We've got all these people that benefit from that. And hey, I've worked in those industries. I, I know it. I understand it. But we already have a system to collect uh, payments. Uh, and graduate tax may not be something, may be something that could, could help uh, mitigate the rising costs, but also provide access. And I think those are new. We have to think big, big ideas around this. I also think in terms of risk, I think that the types of many steps you can get along the way. Uh, I went to community college as well as Arizona State, right? Before going on to Harvard Graduate School, right? So I've, I am a product of a lot of other community assets. And, um, and frankly, back in the 80s, Asia wasn't good at teaching math. I had a better math education at community college probably. Um, and I think that we have to be willing to say certain uh, parts of the education spectrum can be delivered by uh, partnerships. Uh, and in, uh, in new ways. I've always thought it shocking to me that uh, we needed a new economics textbook every three years uh, from McGraw-Hill. I, I just, that economics or Shakespeare change, I mean, and yet they came out every three or four years, right? And that type of thing just doesn't happen. This is where the, the markets may not be the perfect uh, solution for kind of what we're trying to do, which is to lift all of our living standards and strengthen community bonds. I think that uh, the, the, the goal for all of us is to really build a stronger, healthier community and society. And education isn't just about a job. It is about helping us to have some enlightenment about the common good. And right now in this election, you don't see a lot of focus about the common good. And by the way, the common good, I'm not an insurance guy. I always tell people the reason tuition insurance works is we have a lot of schools participating. We have 400 schools right. participating. If every school would do it, we would sell more policies and the price would go down. The real goal of this is to have a, we don't know which student's gonna get mono, which student's gonna get a concussion, but we know it's going to happen. And we know that some number of those students are not gonna be able to complete their degree. My estimate right now is that more than a billion dollars a year is lost due to legitimate reasons why students can complete a degree or complete wow. a semester. And so those things are a common good. We want them all to be able to return. Right. Um, so it's an interesting problem, but risk in this higher education market has probably never been uh, more fully discussed and yet still not fully understood. It's, there are like a hundred PhD programs that should be doing research on, the, on these types of risks, so. Well, I think it's a, it's like a brilliant place to end, you know, risk uh, mitigation as a, as a common good strategy, right? Common good is a way that, you know, we think about that and uh, that could mean partnerships across colleges, partnerships across organizations in the ecosystem. I mean, I, I am encouraged because I'm seeing more of that thinking happen uh, now and, and hopefully we'll start to see even more of that in terms of real action. But, uh, but I really appreciate you joining us today, John. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And um, next week, for those of you who are interested, I've got, uh, I'm going where 
no bold leader in learning has ever gone before by interviewing my own boss. So stay tuned for next Thursday's issue with Andy Rosen, CEO of Kaplan. And uh, John, thanks again for the time. Good luck with all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Brandon.